Good morning, church. Hope you appreciated my children's moment. I worked very hard on it. I invite you this morning to turn to your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We are starting a new book uh, today. Um, while you are turning there, I'd like to start, share a phrase with you, uh, a very particular phrase, one we all know. But the more I think about this phrase, uh, the less comfortable I seem to grow with it. The sentence is this. Jesus is the most important part of my life. The reason I've grown less comfortable with this phrase is because I think this phrase uh, may be a deviation or a departure from what the Bible would talk about my life being. You see, the Bible talks about how you and I can do nothing and how life itself is really only found in him. And Jesus goes on to make it very clear in John chapter 15, verse 5, a verse I'm sure many of us are familiar with. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I was in charge of writing up the morning devotions for our student ministries youth camp in Lake Yale a few weeks ago. And every morning they go through this booklet that they're handed at the beginning of camp and they read through a morning devotion. It's kind of their private time or their personal time with with God that day. And uh, during the morning devotions, I had someone come up to me, a leader there over the students, and she was particularly shocked at my phrasing of one of the titles. Uh, The title of my third day, I think it was, was Stop Making God Your First Priority. And she looked at me and she goes, that's a terrible thing to tell the student. And I go, did you read the devotion? And she goes, not yet. I was so dismayed by the, by the title. And I said, please, just continue to read on the, the, devo- the devotion. I promise you it will make sense. Why I'm, not saying, why I'm saying that I feel a little uncomfortable with making God a part or making God a priority is because on a priority list, things are different. They're distinct and they're kind of competing For our time. This is why they are ranked. This is why there's a list. So if God is number one on your list, then what does that mean? This means there are a bunch of things on this list that may have nothing to do with Him, yet they are still competing with your time and attention. When someone is saved, they are ultimately saying, God, I am making a lousy God over my own life. I need Christ. As my Savior, and not just my Savior, as my Lord, to not just be a part of my life and not just be a priority on my list or a box I check or a card I fill out after a guilty weekend. Jesus is saying, I am not just a part of your life. I am life. In fact, he goes on to say, what you will do as my follower is is actually kind of lose your life. What you'll do as my follower is you'll come and you'll lay down your life. And then only then will I give you true life. The idea of compartmentalization, as it's often referred to, is something that we have all walked into a degree. None of us are really foreign to this. I have work. I have family. I have church. I have extracurriculars. Right? I have hobbies. It makes our time look like a pie graph. And depending on what I care about the most, yeah, you remember pie graphs? 
Depending on what I care about the most, I divvy it up any way I choose. Work. Okay, so I need to spend a lot of time at work. I'm providing for a family. Work definitely has a nice chunk of the pie. I'm a family man. Family's got to be involved. They've got to be thrown in that graph too. You don't leave them out of the loop. So that's another huge section gone for family man time. The idea of a pie graph works well for us because we get to split the pie any way we want. But Christianity paints a way different picture about how we're to live our lives. It's more like a hub and spoke where Jesus sits at the center of the wheel and all of life emanates from him. Rather than live a segmented life, one foot in the world, one foot in the church, Jesus sits at the literal center of my life and through his love and grace and mercy influences every aspect of my life and my interaction with others. In a marriage ceremony, you have a wife to be and a husband to be to stand up at the altar and they exchange vows. And once the two are married, they do not leave the altar husband to be and leave the altar wife to be. They do not go about their lives after they've been uh, in communion with each other, after they've been married, to live life as single people. You are married. It would be crazy to live life as a single man after marriage. The man does not leave the wedding and leave his wife. He now shares his life with her. Finances, home, a bed, children. Why? Because in marriage there's a growing alignment with our lives. And the Christian faith should mirror something like this instead of relegating Jesus to a slice of pie on the pie graph. In the book of Titus, what the Apostle Paul is going to unpack for us is this very link between gospel belief, what we proclaim to believe, and our gospel behavior, how we live our lives. Our life will speak to what we believe. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to his co-laborer Titus, so used to saying Timothy there, will reorient the gospel from the sides to the center and fill us in on how um, what we once believe salvation, once we believe in Christ, it will impact every single aspect of our lives. So Titus is the third, third of the pastoral epistles. Uh, Neil and I have been walking through on Sundays. First Timothy, we see issues arising at the church and Ephesus in Ephesus and throughout the letter. Paul grounds Christian behavior in the gospel and how it should counter a lost world. Second Timothy is a bolder, clear call for perseverance in the gospel in spite of what suffering, pain, isolation, everything Paul had experienced. He never asked of Timothy or Titus something that he hadn't gone through himself. He's saying this is what it costs. This brings us to Titus, a book concerned with living like Christ in the midst of a world out to silence the message of God. Church, the truth is the message of God will never be silenced. Will you? If you are able, will you please stand with me as we read Titus 1, 1 through 4. Together this morning, I'm so excited to read the Word of God aloud with you, church. 
Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Church, may we always remember the powers in the word of God forever and always. You may be seated. This morning, I would like to do a couple things. One, provide context and framework for you. So we're going to be walking through the book of Titus. It is important that we get as much context and framework as we can into this uh, message this morning, as well as walk through three occurring themes in the book of Titus, reoccurring themes. So we're going to look at some context and framework and then some reoccurring themes. And my hope is that we remain a people prepared and open to what God will do in our lives through the word. Be on the lookout, by the way, for many parallels of the culture that Titus is in in Crete and the culture we live in today. That will help us. The letter of Titus was probably written in the 60s, uh, not the 1960s, for any clarification there. The sixth decade of the first century. And even if you read every word of the Acts of the, of the Apostles in the book of Acts, it's almost impossible really to do anything but guess as to when Titus was written. Uh, best estimates have it between Paul's first and second Timothy letters. Paul's first imprisonment referenced in Acts 28, if you'll remember, ended with Paul being released, right? And his second imprisonment where he writes second Timothy ended in what? His death in Rome, his beheading. But in that middle period between those two letters, Paul did what Paul always did since becoming Paul. He moved around, preached Christ crucified, Christ risen. Everyone, 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 Christ has changed me. He can change you too. Believe and repent. The man lived for this message and through his ministries found himself in the islands of Crete in Greece. Crete is the setting for the book of Titus. Congregations, by the way, had started to establish up and down these islands before Paul and Titus uh, got there. The, the reason we know that is because Jewish Christians who were saved at Pentecost in Acts 2, possibly through the preaching of Peter, right, were uh, saved. And then the first thing they do is go and plant churches along the islands of Crete. So you have this idea of spearheading Christianity in Greece uh, before the ministries of Paul and Titus arrived there. But Titus, as Paul left, Titus remained in Crete to be a pastor. Some of you in here may have even visited the islands of Crete in Greece. Uh, Crete is nowhere near Orlando, so I personally haven't gone. But I do know, I do know Crete is the largest and most populous of these islands in this island chain. Why is Paul writing to Titus? So that he might encourage him to lead his congregation well amidst a cult-driven, devious culture. Crete was not an easy place to be. Crete was marred by immoral access. The Cretans, by the way, this would have been so easy 
had the word Cretan as we know it found its origin in Crete? And I could have been like, okay, so it's synonymous. It doesn't. I tried. I googled everywhere. It's just not an origin in Crete. So the way, way you know Cretan can actually help you figure out that the people from Crete were not nice people, but they were also called Cretans. It just has nothing to do with the other Cretan word we know. They were once described by a prophet of their own kind in verse 12 of chapter 1, describing them as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Could you imagine that being on the bottom of the Welcome to Florida sign? Church, this church of Crete may be separated from Christians today by by 2,000 years, by time, but the circumstances aren't that different. The same seemingly impossible task, the call of the Christian, is the same now as it was then. We must be in the fallen world, but we are not to be of it. We must avoid foolishness and pursue wisdom from God. And we must somehow engage with the world that we are trying to reach with this saving message without letting our guard down or stop being mindful of the inevitability of their influence. You see, within the islands of Crete, Christianity wasn't the only religion being discussed. You not only had abrasive debauchery, but you had Greek mythology, atheism masquerading as wisdom, the beginning of philosophy, as some will refer to it, Roman gods and goddesses, and professed believers in Crete watering down the gospel to make it more culturally acceptable. Man, I am so glad that we don't have to worry about that one anymore. In Titus 1, 13 through 14, Titus was instructed by Paul to rebuke his congregation sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and they will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. Now, these Jewish myths Paul is referring to were those diluting the scriptures with Greek philosophical ideas, ideas that contradicted the gospel. And they did this in order to accommodate the Greeks. Jewish Christians were distorting basic Hebrew teachings in order to make them more palatable to sell. Church, the truth of God does not need the editing pen of man. It doesn't need it to make it more powerful or more palatable. We must trust the Scriptures enough. We must trust the work of the Holy Spirit enough to rest assured by preaching the word faithfully, by living the word faithfully, that we will grow spiritually and the kingdom of God will grow physically on God's time, by way of God's will. We are to be obedient in the message, not change it to fit some type of agenda. Titus 3.9, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. And with that charge, let's take a look at three themes in the book of Titus. Three themes in the book of Titus. Three themes are to be God's people in a fallen world. We who are saved by God's grace must engage in good deeds and discern Christ-centered doctrine in our local assemblies. First one, to be God's people in a fallen world, we must first be saved by grace. Verse 1. 
Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. The kindest, most important words in all of Scripture, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Who here is thankful that God's grace is bigger than anything else we've ever done? One of the glories of the gospel, one of the things that makes it so sweet and heartbreaking is that it is the power of God necessary for salvation, even in the most corrupt of cultures. The power of God is not dependent on the culture for its power. By itself, planted in the deepest, darkest places in the world, will start to take root and start to take effect because it is not dependent on the things outside of it to grow and to do its job. The gospel, let alone, will do its job. We don't need to take an editing pen to it. We don't need to manipulate it. The fit origin is to look at our life first and see where the Bible measures up because we're not willing to change. That is not the call of Christianity. One thing we're able to see here, and we get a closer look in leadership, especially those on the missions team, but we get to partner a bit with Richie Allen, uh, Dr. Richie Allen from Link Up Missions, who works in Brazil. And Richie's mission is to go from tribe to tribe to tribe, from village to village to village in Brazil. And what you know what Richie does? He preaches the word of God faithfully. And you know what happens in these villages? People are being saved right now as we speak, as we meet and gather here. And they're not only being saved, churches are being planted where there were never churches, where there aren't churches, five, six, seven to one on each side of the road, on each corner of a street. They're nothing there and the gospel comes into nothing and makes it everything for them. And they're able to do that because it's a living, breathing thing and it serves a living, breathing savior. This idea that we somehow know better than the word of God has to end We don't. Here's the one thing we need to always make synonymous with the gospel. The gospel is radical in nature. It's not safe. It's not boring. If you've been desensitized to the power of the gospel and to the message being faithfully preached, the problem is with you, not the gospel. It's radical. Changes everything. And and, and I fear that. I do. In my faithlessness. I fear that being raised in church, which I don't even like that term, you're raised at home. But one thing I fear is that we become desensitized when we speak or sing of living hope. Is it a trip to the library or are we reflecting upon how God picked us up from nothing and made us something? And we have nothing but hearts filled to the brim with gratitude with a call to mission, with an understanding of responsibility because of how great He is. In a a nation where we're so blessed to be able to practice our faith freely, my point is oftentimes we may take it for granted. The term salvation is a radical term, just as it was in Crete, just as it is today. The Spirit of God does not save someone in need of a little help. The Spirit of God does not give us a little boost. He saves someone who is helplessly and hopelessly lost without divine intervention. Conversion doesn't make a good person better. It brings the dead to life. And the human race is dead in their trespasses and sins. Charles Spurgeon, as we'll make sure we quote Charles Spurgeon at least once every sermon, once said, The greatest enemy 
to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. Paul is clear about the power of salvation in Titus. Salvation depends upon coming to the knowledge of the truth, which only God can impart. Faith comes by hearing his word, not by following our hearts. Our hearts are naturally deceitful above all things, and we get that condition honestly. Paul states that the natural man, one untouched by salvation, cannot understand these truths unless the Spirit of God opens his eyes. We see that in 1 Corinthians 2.14. says the wisdom of God is folly to an unbeliever. As you sit there in church, I feel your burden. I feel that in your hearts and in your souls of hopelessly and relentlessly. Some of you mothers, some of you fathers in here praying for unbelieving children. And going, Lord, may I just remember that it is folly to them if they do not know you. But that your grace is so much bigger than their sin. Can I just tell you to be faithful in that pursuit, to pray for your children, to pray for your relatives, to pray for your friends? Many, many, many testimonies in this very room, right here, in the men's ministry conferences we've had, in the ladies' Bible studies we've heard of people praying for decades and God delivering. He can do it. When you follow Jesus... You aren't just working to keep your feet on the firm foundation of his promises. Acts 16, 14, we see how the Lord opened Lydia's heart to hear what Paul had to say. This means that no one can reason his way to salvation apart from God's revelation in his word. Church, the greatest news for us is that once our eyes have been opened to the gospel, they can never be closed to the gospel again. Praise the Lord. We are transformed into a people known for good works or good deeds. That's what it results in. To be God's people in a fallen world, those saved by grace must engage in good deeds. This is the second major theme, by the way, in the book of Titus, and we see it twice in our passage today. First, in verse 1, Paul refers to himself as servant of God. If you notice, Paul doesn't refer to himself as the right reverend, honorable Paul, author and Christian conference speaker. He says, servant of God. All that know Christ are God's bondservants living life to commit to his bidding, his will. And he often refers to himself, by the way, Paul does, as servant of Christ. But did you know that this is the only time that we see him refer to himself as servant of God? This was a title that was most often applied to Moses and several other prophets. So perhaps, this is the guess, that he is attempting to establish some credibility with the Jewish Christians who are there in Crete. We don't know. But the point remains, if you are a child of God through new birth, church, listen, you are not your own. It's a confusing message in a me-centered culture, isn't it? You've been bought with a price, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. And now as someone bought by God and grateful for it, guess what we do? We live to obey the commands of God. This will result in good works and good deeds. Second time this theme is mentioned in the passage, Paul says in verse 1 that the knowledge of the truth is according to what? Godliness. In Ephesians 2, 8-9, we see that all who have been saved by grace through faith are what? God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? 
good works. In Titus, Paul emphasizes good deeds in all three chapters, and it continues to be a dominant theme in chapter 2. Titus 2.10, God's people should live lives adorning the doctrine or truth of God our Savior in every respect. He says it again in 3.1, but adds by submitting to authorities. It's another word for saying that. In other Uh, In other words, don't leave good deeds up to gut feelings. Put in the work and learn how to be godly people. Learn how to be godly people in an ungodly world. For example, this means husbands are going to learn how to love their wives and wives are going to learn how to love their husbands. And can I just say in this respect, I don't mean offering or taking another class here. Women, if you find a sister in Christ who has loved her husband for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years, go and spend time with her. That time is more valuable than gold. That she is your class. Husbands, as the leaders of the household, please do not sacrifice opportunities for spiritual growth and mentorship on the hill of pride and false masculinity. It should be our hope to be well near the end of our life, remaining teachable to what God has to tell us. Two things are always occurring, by the way, between the world and the church. The church is trying to save the world, while the world is trying to conform the church to look like the world. The type of conformity doesn't always come in such an abrasive form like a California state bill attempting to lay the groundwork to ban the Bible on the grounds of hate speech. But oftentimes the persuasions to conform to the world happen under our noses. Women are being tempted by the world around them right now to place their worth in other things outside of the discipleship of Jesus Christ. And it's getting bigger and bigger the younger you get in generations. Perpetuated in a society by men refusing to lead their families well or flat out abandoning them, the world around us works to make a woman feel lesser if she submits to the leadership of her husband or even more specifically submits and decides to be a stay-at-home mother. As if this role is somehow less fulfilling or, my goodness, less work than pursuing a field of work outside of the home. Whether you are a godly mama in here working outside the home or a godly mama working in the home, can we all agree one isn't less work than the other when it's done right? I can't remember, or I can remember during the 2012 debates when an article came out about Ann Romney against her claiming she hasn't worked a day in her life. The woman was a stay-at-home mom for five kids. Vacation every day doing that. (laughs) Amy Jo and I have this uh, app on our phone called Life360. It's a rather creepy app, actually, uh, where it allows us to track like everyone in our family, wherever they go. And it (laughs) it tells us how far they are from us at any given time in like minutes and miles. I know. (laughs) We're that insecure. Uh, (laughs) Just trying to remain guarded, right? This is, you know what that's about? We got that app after she realized I kept going to McDonald's behind her back. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Weird timing on that. Amy Jo um, often, not often, but will leave the house with the girls, and I'll be by myself with the girls. 
for a couple hours. And I can keep it together for about a couple hours. Uh, and I'll find myself grabbing my phone and checking the app to see how far away she is. To see if she's in running distance. If I can't get there with like a kid in each arm. Oh, she's only a couple minutes away. No human being should listen to the world to determine your worth. As we work through Titus, one major thing we should remember, one that Neil will, I'm sure, continue to bring up, that whatever the culture says must be met by us with whatever the Bible says, and we must stand with the Bible. So how can we remain steadfast in this allegiance to the things of God? Our final point here, to be God's people in a fallen world, we must be saved by God's grace. We must be a people of good deeds. And finally, we must be a people who can discern Christ-centered doctrine in our local assemblies. Titus 1.3 God who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Church, do you know how you can best determine if the leadership of your church is faithful to Christ and the Scripture? Know the scriptures as well as humanly possible. The church has two types of responsibilities here working together. One, morally. Knowing the scriptures, live lives of self-control. And two, doctrinally. We are to seek absolute clarity in our understanding of what the Bible says. And this won't take place an hour a week with someone else doing the reading. This will never come to fruition that way. In the same way we are to learn to do good deeds, we are to labor over the teachings of Christ. This should be evident in your home. It should be a daily pursuit for the believer. And if you have been saved by God's grace, guess what, church? You now love what God loves, and no one has ever had to talk you in to doing something that you love to do. All of this, of course of course means that there is a great responsibility on the leadership of the church. Believers in Crete were being constantly confronted, as we've gone over, by false teachings. Paul in one sixteen references the false teachers when he says, they profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. Titus is to tell his people with that in mind, The link that exists between the truth of God's word and our human behavior is to be an emblem for the world around us to show genuine and sincere faith. We are to practice what we are preaching. Titus is asked to preach sound doctrine so his people will know sound doctrine and so the churches of Crete will live out sound doctrine. You know what he's not asked to do? He's not asked to entertain or build a crowd by any means necessary, is he? A surefire way, by the way, to set your church leadership up for moral failure is to make them a celebrity and take away their accountability. This calling of the pastor, it was never meant to be a glamorous position. We see it that way more and more because the church has been duped into thinking you must resemble the world in order to reach the world shortchanges the power of the Spirit of God. We will not reach the world by looking exactly like them. If we look exactly like them, we will let them down. Bottom line is, godly character will emerge from sound teaching 
And those possessing godly character are more apt to determine the truth from the lies, the light from the darkness. Church, that is the goal, to be set apart, to be weird, to be different. Some of you have gotten weird down really well. Listen, Jesus Christ is a light no matter how dark it gets out there. And it can get really dark. I hear things all the time. We just have such immediate access to information around us. It's just kind of frightening. But you can have a great day and find something on your news feed or an article that pops up on a magazine you subscribe to or something. And you're just like, how could this happen? Your first question, right? It's an honest question. It's rightful. makes sense. How could someone be this evil? How could something like this occur? It's the same reason as the cause that stands in the way of our sincerity of faith. Things like this happen because of sin. Unchecked, unrepentant sin. I hear stories every week that shake me to my core. The answer is always sin. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because there are no good people. There are only sinners and sinners saved by the grace of God. Bad things happen because we brought bad things in to a perfect world God had created. Small sins lead to big sins. Private sins morph into sins on national news. Sin corrupts the heart and it corrupts the mind of a believer. And the more we entertain it, the more we think we have a hold or control of it, the less we guard ourselves against it, and it will start to turn morally detestable things into pleasures to a point where we wouldn't recognize our new selves. This is what we now call a cultural Christian. Someone who wears the label of Christian, but the label has more to do with family background and upbringing than personal conviction that Jesus is Lord. A cultural Christian identifies with certain aspects of Christianity, such as the good works of Jesus, but rejects the spiritual aspects required to be a biblically defined follower of Jesus. William Barclay said this, Paul gives Titus a great task. He sends him to Crete to be a pattern to the Christians who are there. The greatest compliment Paul paid Titus was that he sent him to Crete not to talk about talk to them about what a Christian should be, but to show them what a Christian should be. Church, I'm asking you this morning, can your friends, can your family, can your mentors, can your pastors, can they say this about you? Can they say that you show others what a Christian should be? Church, there is such a danger in proclaiming Christ in public while living like the world in private. We become convinced we know the truth when the truth is we don't. One foot in the world and one foot in the church is ultimately both feet in the world. This is why within the walls of this fallen world, we are to obey the laws of a gracious God, flee from sin, and pursue the Savior. God has gifted you, church. He has gifted His children, the church. 
He has offered communication to him through prayer. And he has protected his word so that you and I may read it in our language and learn how to live in the light as he is in the light. May we not be a people of squandered time or idle worship. May we work to be set apart for the world's sake, for our growth, and for our merciful God's glory. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we are thankful We are thankful for the word as piercing as it can feel. Father, we thank you for the refining fire of fellowship of the word of time with you. Father, in our prayer and meditation throughout this week, may we remember that we can do nothing apart from you and that you are not just a part of our lives or a priority in our lives. But as Paul is trying to tell Titus as he pastors at Crete, you are life. All good, all wisdom comes from you. Let us not attempt a single hour of our lives without thinking upon you and asking you for help in all things. Father God, you are our strength. You are our Savior. You are gracious and loving, and we praise your name. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.